the book of John, chapter 1. The book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 36. The Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 36. This is the testimony of Apostle John, the testimony, the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 19. The scriptures read, This is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day... He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that we might be witnesses for you, that, Lord, you would lift up our eyes, that we might see the greatness of of your Son, that, Father, we would love him and desire to point the way to others. Help us, O God, to have a fear of you, to understand your word, 
that you would teach us in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, every year around Thanksgiving, there are families all across the country who begin decorating their homes. They decorate their homes with all sorts of Christmas decorations and lights. And for some families, this is a cherished tradition. For others, it is sometimes somewhat competitive. You probably drive around your neighborhood, and just as I do in mine, and as you drive home, you'll notice that some homes, some homeowners are more enthusiastic than others are. In fact, some homes, they decorate for every single holiday there might be. And maybe for you, you're not as enthusiastic. Well, imagine if you lived next door to such an individual. Well, you would probably concede that the purpose of your home and your life is to make your neighbor look good. Well, this year, uh, or I should say a couple years ago, there was a news story about one family who had decided to cut off the competition before it even started. The lady's name was Jamie Kelly. She lived in Detroit. And her family began to put up the outdoor decorations and the lights, but became quickly discouraged because, well, her neighbor was very extravagant. And, of course, as she put up the lights, she began to think, well, you know what? Nothing seems to measure up. So what did she do? She decided to take a couple of pieces of plywood instead and put that plywood outside in front of her home. And with a couple of sets of lights, she wove together a big, bright arrow pointing to her neighbor's house. And then she took another set of lights and wove it into the words, the letters, D-I-T-T-O, ditto. (laughs) Christmas time in America is like that, very much like that, as we often are drowned out the real meaning of Christmas by being eclipsed by the commercialism, the lights, the parties, the food, the celebrations, so easily pointing and looking at our neighbors' party or celebrations, their toys, their vacations, etc. But for Christians, Christmas is an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity for us to point the arrow, the arrow of our finger pointing up because it is all about Jesus Christ all about pointing people to Jesus, all about plain, everyday people pointing to Jesus. I'm sure that as you think about your own testimony of how you came to know the Lord Jesus and were saved, it is all filled with people in your life. I think about my own life and everyday people, people who are not rich or famous or well-known, ordinary people who simply pointed the way. Everyone had a part, and so many people did in my own life as well as I'm sure yours who had uh, something to say, some invitation to give, some sort of uh, event that was happening, or just simply shared with you what God had said in His Word. Maybe it's your friend or your family member, maybe it's your relatives or your Sunday school teacher, all of them faithfully pointing the way to Jesus. And Christmas time is such an opportunity, such an opportune time to talk about Christ, to talk about the gospel, such an opportune time to tell others about how Jesus is the one who can bring freedom, who can bring freedom from our sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, a theologian during World War II when he was sitting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, just a few weeks before Advent. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to a friend, and this is what he said, quote, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent upon the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. It's not a bad picture of Advent, unquote. Shortly thereafter, the Nazis put him to death. But it is an accurate picture because what? Those who don't know Christ are imprisoned in their own sin, imprisoned in the guilt of their sin, imprisoned in their destiny, and no one can open the door except for Christ, and that has to be from the outside. And we have the opportunity to point people to Christ. We have that opportunity as we humbly, like many people in our lives, have pointed us to Jesus to point people in the right direction, to testify, to witness of what Christ has done in our own lives. And that is what John the Baptist does here. He comes on this scene. He wasn't a rich and famous individual, or I should say famous in perhaps a way that is not particularly. He attracted a lot of attention, but wasn't somebody that was, I would say, typical, no, perhaps rather strange, perhaps rather backwards. Here he was, he pointed the way to Christ, he desired to exalt Christ, not so that he could be well-known, but that he could make Christ known. The text of this particular passage that we read here from John chapter 1, verse 19 and following, chronicles three consecutive days, day one, day two, day three. We know that because it simply says in the verses 29, 35, etc., the next day, again, the next day, that's what happens. And here John the Baptist proclaims Christ, he witnesses, he testifies of who Christ is. John the Baptist came. He began his preaching ministry. He was baptizing for about six months prior to Jesus coming on the scene to be baptized. And then Jesus is baptized, and John continues to preach for another six months or so. And then Herod incarcerates him. Herod puts him in prison. And then later on, throughout the course of a year, having been in prison for about a year, Herod makes a foolish promise and has John beheaded. His ministry lasted about two years there. But on these three days in that very first year, in the middle of that very first year, he testifies of Christ in three consecutive days. And he tells everyone there that this is all about Jesus. Look at the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. In these three days, he testifies. And so here he models for us what an effective or good testimony is all about, aspects of a good testimony. Now, he tells us, first of all, in verse 19 through 28, this is a testimony, a good testimony. This is the testimony of John, and it's all about Jesus. That is the first aspect. It is all about Jesus, and this is what John models. 
When it says there in verse 19, the testimony of Jesus, he uses a word that is one of John, the Apostle John's favorite words that he uses in all of his epistles and writings, and that is the word to testify. It comes from the word to martyr or martyrace. It is found more than 75 times in the Apostle John's writings, one of his favorite words. And here he says that the testimony of John the Baptist, he humbly points to Christ. John the Baptist was not some lowly person in God's eyes. In fact, Luke 7.28 tells us that Jesus said of John the Baptist, I say to you among those born of women, there is no greater, no one greater than John. No one greater than John. Now, when you stop to think about it, that's quite a statement to make because saying that John is greater than the Old Testament saints, the Abraham or David or Solomon or Isaiah. Certainly it wasn't because of how John dressed or the things that he ate. It wasn't because of who he was or how he looked. He wasn't famous because of his profession, his job or his style or lack thereof. Jesus considered him the greatest man who had lived up to that point and What a compliment it was. What a compliment. Now, I can imagine if some of you who are parents, if your daughter brought home somebody who looked like John the Baptist, brought him to the door, sort of conversation you might have, where does he live? Where do you live? I live in the desert. What do you do for a living? I just talk. I'm kind of an itinerant speaker. Do you have a steady job? No. Oh, What do you like to eat for dinner? Bugs and honey, locusts, etc. And perhaps he comes with curly hair that is all knotted together, not having taken a bath, perhaps, needs to shave. He's kind of different. And your daughter says, he's so cool. (laughs) In God's eyes, John was great, very great. John was very popular among the people in Judea and Jerusalem, and they were all flocking to John to find out more because John was baptizing people. This is the testimony of John. And so all of this attention attracted the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and so they send some individuals to talk with John and find out who he was. Just so there's no confusion, they come and they ask him, who are you? Verse 19. So there's no confusion. John tells them unequivocally, right off the bat, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Now, right off the bat, he tells them the most obvious thing. He is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. But what about Elijah and the prophet? Why are they asking this? Well, God spoke through the prophet Malachi, in the last book of, of the Old Testament. And he says this in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse." So there was a belief among the Jews that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And the Jews even look today forward to Elijah's return. If you've ever been to a Jewish Passover Seder, you know they have a seat there that is empty as they, as they practice the Passover Seder. It's an empty chair. The empty chair is 
for Elijah. Was Elijah? No, he denies that. But he was like an Elijah. In fact, Jesus, Jesus explains to his disciples, when his disciples asked of him in Matthew 17, the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he, Jesus, said, answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples, it says in Matthew 17, 13, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not actually Elijah. He was like Elijah. It is he who came as a forerunner. It is he who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, as Luke 1, 17 tells us, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He was like an Elijah that came, and Jesus indicates that. But he was not actually Elijah himself. That's why they asked him this. Are you Elijah? He says no. Thirdly, they asked him, are you the prophet? And that comes from Deuteronomy 18.15, when it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So among the Jews, there was certainly an uncertainty as to who this prophet would be. But Peter and Stephen both applied Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus correctly. That prophet was going to be Jesus. And John had already said it wasn't Christ, he said it again. And the conversation goes on. They ask him, are you the Christ? Or that's implied that, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Then they said to him, verse 22, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. In short, John wasn't testifying and witnessing and exalting himself. He didn't say, well, my name is John, and I live out there, and I have all these people flocking to me. It wasn't about him at all. In fact, he doesn't even identify himself as John. He was an individual who proclaimed Christ because it was all about Jesus in the testimony that he was giving, all about pointing the way to who Christ was. The focal point of his testimony was Christ and what Christ did. He doesn't mention anything in the text about his fame or baptism or anything like that. He is merely a voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord, a calling to people to repentance, to turn to God. He wanted Christ to be exalted, to be at the center of his testimony. You know, one of the easiest ways for us to share our faith is by sharing our testimony about Christ who came to open the door of our heart, so to speak, quote-unquote. The main point of our testimony is not how we started going to church. The main point of our testimony is not how we grew up in a Christian family, or great examples of people in our lives, etc. The focal point of a good testimony is about the good news of Jesus, what Jesus has done who Jesus is, and how Jesus has changed our lives. Yet some people feel as if, well, my testimony is not that great. 
My testimony is nothing special. They feel as if their testimony isn't filled with some sort of sordid past of being saved out of some gang or being saved from being addicted to drugs or after some near-death experience or some other fantastic story. They were saved perhaps after hearing the gospel in junior worship or Sunday school and God opened the door to their heart and they were saved and somehow they feel that that's not such a special story. But the truth of the matter is each and every testimony is special because the focal point is about Jesus, not about us. It's about what Christ has done. So we don't need to embellish our testimony and somehow try to make things look better. The testimony of what Christ has done and all of the things that the scriptures record of him in the gospels is enough. The power of the gospel is what saves people as God uses his spirit to open blind eyes so that they might come to the Savior. And that is John's point here, especially as he says in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. And he doesn't talk about himself. He merely points to Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the prophet. He is not Elijah. No, he is the one who points the way to Christ. Now, verse 24, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He humbly points to the Savior that he is unworthy of untying the sandals, which is the lowliest job of a person's, in the person's home. It was done by the servants. That's how John saw himself in a position of humility, that he was not even worthy to be considered anyone special except for one who points to Christ. J. Oswald Sanders once noted that humility of the leader as his spirituality will be an ever-increasing quality, unquote. He points out the progression we see over time with the Apostle Paul in regard to his self-assessment. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. Ephesians 3, 8, I am the least of all the saints. 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the chief of sinners. As one grows in Christ, as one begins to see themselves in the light of the holiness of God and the grace of God, one grows in their own, own clear sight of who they are, that one is nothing aside from Christ, that it is Christ who is at the center of our testimony, not us, that it is Christ that we desire to make great, not us, not us. It is hard sometimes, especially in our own pride, to see, even in Christmas time, to receive God's gift. In the book entitled Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ, the author writes, quote, Christmas is about receiving presents, but consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it from another friend, entitled 
that book, Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, for I am indeed, I am overweight and obnoxious, unquote. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit that you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps on some other occasion, you have a friend who figured out that you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. If that ever happens to you, you probably found that to receive the gift meant swallowing your pride. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life, unquote. To receive the gift of Jesus requires that one be humble. That is why in the Beatitudes it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn about what? Mourn about their sin. Those who are poor in their spirit. Meaning what? They see the poverty of their own life and realize there is nothing I have to offer for the gift of salvation. That I am a sinner who needs help. And we are to come to Christ on our knees because no one enters the kingdom of heaven in any such way other than on our knees. And so we have the opportunity to point people to Christ who brings the greatest gift. John the Baptist, he didn't care that anyone would know about him. A good testimony is all about Christ. And secondly, a good testimony points to the greatness of Christ, the greatness of who Jesus is. The next day, verse 29, Jesus comes and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so as he might be manifested to Israel, uh, that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him. John reiterates in this passage the greatness of who Jesus is, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the idea of a lamb was well known. A lamb was used as a sin offering in the Old Testament. A lamb was used in the temple at Passover. It was well known that the lamb was the one who was given for sin, and that is why Jesus came. John came, and he preached a message of judgment, a message of repentance, a message against sin. And he was baptizing all who would come in repentance 
whether it be from Judea to Jerusalem, and it was highly unusual. It was highly unusual for him to see Jews would baptize, be baptized, you see? Because in those days, Jews also baptized. You know, it wasn't just Christians who had their baptism. It was Jews who also baptized. But the Jews only baptized those who were converts to Judaism, those Gentiles who came into Judaism. But if you were a Jew and you were born in a Jewish family, you wouldn't be baptized. They didn't see the need to. We're children of Abraham. We're part of the kingdom. We don't need to. We're automatically followers of the one true God, part of the covenant community, and we don't need to be baptized. But here comes John, who preaches a message of judgment, of repentance, of sin, of coming, of the coming judgment that was to come, and people, both Jews and Gentiles, were being baptized by John. This was highly unusual, garnered the attention of the religious leaders of that day. And so he was known as John the Baptist, because he was baptizing everybody, including Jews. People were repenting of their sin, and after they repented of their sin, they were subsequently baptized. Now, this poses a question, because John baptized a baptism of repentance, of why did Jesus seek baptism if John's message was that of repentance? After all, did Jesus need to repent? And it poses a dilemma. In fact, when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 3, it posed a dilemma for, for, for John, because John believed that he was baptizing as a, as a sign of repentance, of turning towards God. But here, when Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, was, wanted to be baptized, it says, but John tried to prevent him. John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knew of his own sinfulness. In fact, he tried to present Jesus and say, I'm the one who needs to be baptized as that of a person who is a sinful person. So there was a, some dilemma as to why was it that Jesus was baptized. Some people say, well, he had to fulfill his priestly duties or just in case he had sinned or somehow Jesus, perhaps somehow Jesus uh, needed to be baptized. And there's all sorts of ideas as to why. But here... Jesus gives the answer in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Jesus said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. These were the first words that Jesus spoke since the age of 12 that are recorded in the Gospels for us. Remember the age of 12, he was at the, uh, in, the, uh, in the temple near the teachers and his parents had wondering where he went because they had left town and here he was in his father's house. These were the very first words that are recorded of him saying, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what does that mean? It means that the reason Jesus was baptized was in fulfillment of all that was right in perfect obedience to fulfill all righteousness. It was not merely an example for us to follow, but it was to fulfill the obedience in perfect submission to God, that he was going to do all that was right, all that was true, all that he himself was going to command that we were to be baptized as well. Jesus did these things 
because it was for the fulfillment of a perfect life. Some say, well, Jesus didn't, quote-unquote, need to. Well, there is a sense in which he did need to, to fulfill all righteousness, but there is a sense in which he didn't need to repent of any sin, which was the meaning of what John was trying to forego. Jesus did things in order to fulfill all of the law, even though in another sense he didn't need to. For example, Jesus, who owns everything because he is God, God owns everything, Jesus didn't need to pay taxes, and yet we find him in Matthew 17 paying his taxes, fulfilling again all that God commands as well as being an individual who would be an example for us. When it comes to baptism, there are Christians who say, well, I don't need to be baptized because it's not needed for salvation. And while it's not needed for salvation, that portion is true, it is necessary for obedience. It is necessary for obedience because it is a clear command of God. He in perfect obedience Christ was baptized. In perfect compliance, in perfect fulfillment of God's righteousness, he was baptized. And he identified with sinners and fulfilled all of God's command in being a perfect individual, a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And as I mentioned in Sunday school this morning too, I think there was an added dimension of this that's not mentioned, but it is appropriate for John who did it. Because John was of the Levitical line. He was a direct descendant of Aaron. And Luke specifies this of John's parents in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And the duty of a priest, of the Aaronic priesthood, was to present, present the sacrifices before the Lord. And as we talked about in the book of Leviticus, there is the uh, idea of the atonement in which the, the, the priest would go and present the sacrifices, the sacrifices for sin that would be given. And in so doing, Jesus would be presented as the sacrifice for sin, the ultimate sacrifice, especially upon John the Baptist's words in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, much like a priest would in the Old Testament, take a lamb or take a goat and lay his hands upon that goat, i.e., transferring in a symbolic way the sins of the people onto that lamb. But he was baptized, Jesus was baptized in perfect obedience, fulfilling all righteousness. John at first didn't recognize him, but the text tells us that he did. As the Spirit of God descended as a dove upon his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3.17. It was the coronation of Christ that came, and John recognized who he was. John pointed humbly to the Savior of the world. He pointed humbly to the Savior of the world, and we are too. He says, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. John was six months older than Jesus, but he says Jesus existed before him. He was of greater importance in the greatness of Christ. He pointed to who Christ was, and he was merely a tool in the maker's hands. That is what we are. We're simply a humble tool that God uses to point the way to Christ. 
Samuel Brengel, you might recognize his name. He was the longtime leader of the Salvation Army. And one day he was introduced as Dr. Samuel Brengel. And in his diary, this is what he wrote. He wrote, If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am not so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. Or I should say, but I am so concerned that he uses me. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing of the woodsman, but for the woodsman, he made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. I Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. That's so very true. We are but an axe in the woodsman's hands. Well, there's nothing to boast about that. As soon as he throws it aside, we become nothing. We're like the uh, paintbrush in an artist's hands. The paintbrush can't boast of the great painting that is done. It is the painter who did those things. Andrew Murray writes, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he has received the Spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Unquote. Christ sought the glory of God in Philippians 2. Therefore God highly exalted him. And so too John was a humble man. He was a humble man who merely pointed the way to Christ. And that is a good testimony. A testimony where it is all about Jesus. A testimony where we don't have to fear that our testimony is somehow substandard because our testimony is about the greatness of who Jesus is. Not about us or some sort of miracle that God has or has not done in our life. But thirdly, a good testimony declares Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. Both in verse 29 as well as in verse 36, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Once again, he points to Christ. It is not about him. It is not about his own greatness. It is about the greatness of who Jesus is and the greatness of him as a sacrifice for sins. He bore testimony of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus, the name himself, means he saves. It comes from the same root as that of Hosea, the same as that of Joshua. He saves. He saves us from sin. That is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, died for sinners. If we turn in repentance from sin and place our faith and trust in him, Christ's blood will cover over our sins and God will grant salvation to those who come in faith and repentance. The humble messenger of John, just like the person who is impoverished, who simply is pointing the way, the pointing the way to show others where to find food without pretending that he himself made it. 
ministry of Christ is the focus. The ministry of Christ and what Christ has done can encourage us that God can use you, God can use me, God can use a plain old person in order to bring the gospel message, to testify who he is. One of the most encouraging things, I find many encouraging stories and challenges to my own life through the lives of various missionaries who have gone out. Because of their dedication and their sacrifice, it is always a humbling thing for me to read various testimonies. One individual was that of a parlor maid, a British parlor maid. Her name was Gladys Allward. She grew up among the poor in England and Because of a learning disability, she dropped out of school. She became a domestic servant for a well-to-do British family. She was merely merely a cleaning lady who demanded long hours of hard work, low pay. She was in her late 20s, and one day she was riding a bus, and one day she was reading a newspaper. And there was an article about the need for missionaries, missionaries in China. And from that moment, God had broken her heart for China, and she resolved to go herself. And she applied to China Inland Missions, CIM, but they turned her down. They turned her down. She was crushed with disappointment, and she returned to her small upstairs room. And she didn't have much. She was very poor. She opened her purse, and she turned it upside down, and two pennies fell out onto her Bible. And she said, Oh, God, Here's my Bible, here's my money, here's me. Use me, O God. And she began to scrimp and save every penny that she could make, and she finally determined she could never save enough to go to China by ship. She would have to take a trip by train across Europe and Asia, crossing a war zone, Manchurian border. Well, she scraped up enough money to go one day, and she said goodbye, London's Liverpool station. She traveled from England all across the Channel to The Hague, across Europe to Moscow, and across Siberia to China. And she was wearing an overcoat, an orange flock, and she carried just a bedroll and a couple of suitcases. One suitcase was just stocked with food and a bag that was clanking with pots and pans. Day and night, that train passed over in the frigid Siberian wasteland. Finally, it stopped in the middle of Siberia there, in the middle of a war zone. The other passengers who were on that train, they were all soldiers, and they all disembarked and headed in the direction of the gunfire. And her, she got off and started trudging back, suitcases in hand, the way to China. She nearly died before she found the nearest station. But by the grace of God, she finally made it there. She moved in with an older, single missionary woman who, as it turned out, she didn't quite know what to do with her in that time. But to make a long story short, Gladys Allward, parlor maid from England, she became one of the most famous missionaries in the 20th century. A woman who is called, quote, the most noted single missionary woman in modern history. Movies been made about her, biographies been written as she worked with children to help rescue them. 
She came to dine with Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. She traveled the world. She gave her testimony many, many times. But notably, one of the most, most notable things about Gladys Allward was her own brokenness, her own humility before Christ, her own willingness to be available for God. She once said, quote, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. I don't know what happened. God looked down and saw Gladys Allward. Her perspective of herself was just a simple person, but it is simple people, humble people, who point the way to Christ, just like you, just like me. Think of when you were called, Paul writes. Not many of you were wise, influential, or of noble birth, but God chose the lowly things, 1 Corinthians 1. So no matter who you are, our job is to point others to Christ in a humble way, exalting Christ as our testimony is all about Him, not about us. And we can bring great glory to God as God uses us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so oftentimes, Lord, during this season, our Christmas lights overshadow the light of Christ. And I pray, God, that you would help us, O oh Father, to see them as tools to point the arrow up and to say, come, come to Christ. To simply give an invitation to share our faith with others, to ask them about their lives, to ask them about their faith, to ask them about their hope, and to point them to the hope we have in Christ. We pray, O oh God, may we see ourselves, O oh God, in the light of your word as humble servants who simply are called to point to Jesus. And may we be faithful to that call. In Jesus' name, amen.